Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're watching a special edition of The Listening Post. This week, we are focusing on Hong Kong, the city and its transformation. July 1st marked 24 years since the United Kingdom handed its colony back to China. With that handover came a set of promises. Beijing would stay out of Hong Kong's internal affairs, keep its hands off its freedoms, including its free press. But for many Hong Kongers, the question was not if, but when, China's Communist Party leaders would break that promise. And the answer appears to be now. Over the past two years, Beijing has intensified the stamping out of political dissent in Hong Kong through new laws drawn up in the name of security, the jailing of critics, and the reining in of the news media. In the second half of this program, we speak to three Hong Kongers whose work and lives have been severely affected by the city's loss of autonomy. But first, Johanna Hoos on how Hong Kong got here from a city of liberties to one that's under assault. Hong Kong always enjoyed the most open liberal press in the region. Well, what we're seeing over the last year or two has been more like a death by a thousand cuts. Even the most optimistic journalists find it difficult to have reason for optimism now. Journalists may have to pay a price for the efforts to seek the truth. Hong Kong, a place once known for its openness and civil liberties, now a place of political persecution and a crackdown on free speech. A city that in the last two years alone has seen more than 10,000 protesters arrested and dozens of dissidents jailed. The results of a transformation that's been 24 years in the making, since July the 1st, 1997. That's the day the United Kingdom, which had ruled Hong Kong for more than 150 years, returned its colony to China. Handing Hong Kong back to China uh, was a weird construct. You had this kind of free, open, capitalist city, this enclave, and so you're handing it back to a country that's controlled by an authoritarian communist party. And the way that the two sides, the British and the Chinese side, uh, were able to make it work because they came up with this uh, amazing formula that said, we'll have one country, but it'll be two systems. China did not become like Hong Kong. If anything, in the 24 years since the handover, it's Hong Kong that's become more like mainland China. Under British rule, the city didn't have a democracy, but it did have robust civil liberties, a well-functioning justice system, and one of the freest media environments in the region. The One Country, Two Systems Agreement was supposed to safeguard this, at least until 2047. And in the initial years after the handover, Beijing held up its end of the bargain. 
That was at least partly because China was unwilling to kill the goose that laid the golden eggs. As a British colony, Hong Kong had grown into a global financial hub, and its thriving port, air links and access to foreign investment enabled China to generate about 20% of its GDP through the city. It made economic sense for Beijing to be relatively hands-off. However, as China grew into an economic superpower in the early 2000s, Beijing started to rethink its Hong Kong strategy. Beginning perhaps from 2003, when there's a marked change of tactic um, of Beijing towards, towards Hong Kong, more control, more interventions and more presence in the way we govern. The media is not immune to those change of strategy. So beginning from that, we've seen the media under more direct and indirect uh, pressure. They start to go in, like the Chinese would be in Hong Kong, like some older people would China's tougher approach to Hong Kong was solidified in 2012, when Xi Jinping was appointed General Secretary of the Communist Party. In 2014, Xi radically changed the election process for the city's most senior political representative, the chief executive. The change infuriated Hong Kongers, and for 79 days, mass protests called the Umbrella Movement paralyzed the city. Beijing responded by ratcheting up its crackdown on dissent. More than a thousand people were arrested for their role in the demonstrations, and at least 127 were convicted. China also intensified its assault on Hong Kong's media. Since 2014, at least five major mainstream media outlets got new pro-Beijing owners, including Hong Kong's dominant broadcaster, TVB, and its leading English newspaper, the South China Morning Post. For those outlets that managed to hold out against the pressure, Beijing wielded its considerable commercial muscle boycotting advertisements in pro-democracy tabloids like Apple Daily. Regardless, Holden Chow, the vice chairman of the largest pro-Beijing party in Hong Kong's government, denies any crackdown on the city's media freedoms. I think it's time for me to refute these untrue and unwarranted accusations. The media enjoy all the freedom of press, nothing less than before, is all vibrant and very diverse. People would smear Hong Kong by saying that, wow, over the past few years, it seems that there are some sort of crackdown on dissent and stuff like that. Of course, they're smearing. I think there was this confluence of events here that made this crackdown kind of inevitable here in Hong Kong. Xi Jinping came into power with a very hardline attitude, and then you have people here start pushing for more democracy. That, that really kind of shook them up in Beijing. They realized that Hong Kong suddenly was a problem. And then along come the 2019 uh, protests, and that's where I think China lost its patience. 
Those 2019 protests were the biggest in Hong Kong's history. More than two million people, about a quarter of the population, took to the streets, risking arrest for 10 consecutive months. Hong Kong's police tried hard to quell the protests, at times with brutal force. Beijing seized on the year-long unrest to introduce legislation, a strict new national security law designed to curb dissent in Hong Kong once and for all. Implemented in June 2020, the law outlaws secession, subversion and collusion with foreign forces, vaguely defined offences that carry maximum sentences of life imprisonment. The new law has proven effective at silencing critics. So far, 54 people have been charged, including Jimmy Lai, the owner of the Apple Daily newspaper. The paper has been repeatedly targeted by the authorities. The final straw came on June 17th, when its officers were raided, the editor-in-chief was arrested and the company's assets were frozen. Within a week of that raid, Apple Daily published its last and final edition. Well, I think uh, as long as you uh, obey the law, you don't go against the national security, I see nothing that they need to fear or worry. Let me take an example. Apple Daily is not only a tabloid, but it's also a propaganda done against central government. So if you are running a media with an agenda to sort of endangering a country's national security, there's something wrong, isn't it? As a freelance producer for Hong Kong's public broadcaster, Radio Television Hong Kong or RTHK, she's become a target for her reporting. Hong Kong Connection reviewed CCTV and online footage. Last year, she was arrested for her investigation into why police didn't intervene in a violent mob attack on pro-democracy protesters in 2019. He was attacked by a group of white-clad men wielding rattan sticks. She looked through publicly available vehicle registration databases to track down the attackers. A practice that the prosecution seized on, alleging that by failing to declare that her search was for journalistic purposes, Choi knowingly made a false statement. She was fined nearly 800 US dollars. 
我自己從來就唔去揣測誒執法部門嘅動機。有好多人質疑就係究竟執法部門係咪嘗試去好似有一種報仇，就係、是、既然你查我，我就拘捕你去、呃、一種報復㗎啦。咁誒呢個就絕對去係對傳媒機構個新聞自由。It's no longer just Beijing that's coming for Hong Kong's media. The city's chief executive Carrie Lam, and what many have called her pro-China rubber-stamp government, are cracking down too. Take Bao Choi's employer, RTHK, the public broadcaster that used to have a reputation for its critical journalism. Following its coverage of the 2019 protests, including police violence, The Hong Kong government conducted a far-reaching review of RTHK's management and editorial direction. It has since replaced its director with a pro-Beijing bureaucrat and axed various of its programs. 我哋成日都講誒，即係納税人俾錢嘅養佢哋咁樣啦。咁但係即係喺政府立場，係政府去去控制，即係出資去控制佢哋。有啲聲音會覺得佢哋應該係去服務政府，而唔係。去同政府對著幹，你喺佢哋心目中應該啲誒廣播，即係公共廣播，應該好似中央電視台或者新華社。Since the riot back in 2019, RTHK has produced some program reporting falsehoods, being very much biased. The government, if they see something wrong done by RTHK or they are simply crossing the red line or going against the charter, they must step in. Is their responsibility? Uh, to regulate and make sure that RTHK will be back on the right track. Going by its newest political show, a program hosted by the chief executive herself, there is little doubt as to which direction RTHK is headed in. But even with so much of Hong Kong's media in a stranglehold and the political opposition silenced, Beijing wasn't done. In March this year, the Communist Party rewrote the rules of Hong Kong's electoral system, ensuring only patriots can now run for government. It could well prove the final nail in the coffin of the One Country, Two Systems Agreement. 最後個大問題就係咁點咧？香港即係《國安法》成立咗之後，或者而家香港咁就係、是、a nail on the coffin， 即係嗰個蓋棺定論。咁所以我會覺得我哋而家只係。一個拜向衰亡嘅開始咯，咁但係可能日後我哋就要係喺一個即係好明確地打壓新聞自由嘅地方，喺嗰啲狹縫之間生存同掙扎。我自己會繼續從事新聞工作嘅，直至不能為止啦、呃。我覺得唔放棄就係我哋力所能及做嘅事咯。Joe, your report documents the way China's crackdown on Hong Kong affects journalism there, but the impact these changes have on freedom of expression—they go way beyond news organizations. Well, absolutely. Take, for example, Hong Kong's publishing industry.、Uh, the Chinese government owns nearly thirty、uh, publishing houses in the city, and it also controls the majority of the bookstores there. Now, they only print and sell books that toe the official line. They've also made changes to school books, which now teach that、uh, Hong Kong's legislature and judiciary ultimately answer to Beijing. Then there's, of course,、um, the new national security law, which could be used to target anyone that expresses undesirable views. For example, filmmakers. 
In June this year, the Hong Kong government announced that it was going to uh, block the distribution of any movie that is deemed to undermine national security. Now, they're also going to vet art exhibitions in galleries and to really cement uh, their control over Hong Kong's narrative. China is reportedly setting up what they call a propaganda department in the city, uh, tasked with controlling uh, media organizations, but also public opinion. So we'll keep an eye on that. These attempts to control what people read, write, say, what they teach, how are citizens, people who have opinions, dealing with that? Are they going silent? Well, I asked three Hong Kongers that exact question. Um, none of them journalists in the traditional sense, but all people who have fallen victim to these new restrictions on freedom of speech. Uh, the first is Lee Chogyan. He is uh, the founder of the June 4th Museum, uh, which is an exhibition in Hong Kong, which is dedicated entirely to telling the truth about the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, a topic that is completely off limits in China. Now, Lee has become a target for his work. Uh, just weeks after we interviewed him, he was arrested and sentenced to 20 months in prison for what the authorities call organizing unauthorized protest. Then there's Wong Kai Kwan, uh, better known under his pen name Zunzi. He uh, is a longtime political cartoonist who has been forced to navigate these new editorial red lines in his drawings. And then lastly, I also spoke to Nathan Law, a former protest leader and democracy activist who was forced to flee Hong Kong, go into exile in London because the authorities uh, back home were going out of their way to silence him. I started the idea of this uh, June 4 Museum during the 20th anniversary of the uh, Tiananmen Square massacre. Because in China, everyone is sort of being uh, told the lie about 1989. It's a complete blackout of 89 history. So we want the truth to come out. April 15, 1989, uh, the previous General Secretary of the uh, Communist Party, Wu Yaobang, uh, died. And uh, he was a very popular reformist, and so uh, it prompted a lot of students uh, to go and mourn his death. And then the mourning began to turn into a demand for anti-corruption, political reform, democracy, and the students began to come out en masse. Uh, to occupy the Tiananmen Square. Uh, but the Communist Party regime uh, condemned uh, the demonstrator, the student, as anti-revolutionary. And then on June 4th, they decided to send an army uh, and, and crack down. Till today, there are no official record of how many people have died during 1989 Times Square massacre. No one knows. And the Communist Party uh, is, of course, trying to uh, suppress all information about what happened. So the idea was, since there are so many Chinese people coming to Hong Kong, it would be very, very important to have a physical museum. The future for the museum is quite uncertain and bleak because the, the Communist Party 
using the national security law, they are using it in a very arbitrary way. The red line can always shift and they can always strangle you. So uh, before the national security law uh, was enacted, we started the process of trying to uh, plan for online museum. First, we have digitalized everything uh, uh, that we have. And so that, you know, that's our plan B in a way, uh, if anything happened to this museum. In a way, what happened in 89 foretold everything. After 32 years, it's the same regime. And they won't tolerate dissent and democracy. And so uh, this is very much relevant today because the fight is still on. I've been drawing for cartoons for almost 40 years. Drawing for such a long time, I could see uh, what has been uh, the life of Hong Kong uh, before the handover and afterwards. So I think uh, to some extent my, my cartoon has recorded uh, the history of transition. This one is drawn um, nearly 40 years ago. It's about a transition, about the um, Hong Kong moving back to China. Actually, it's just like from one cage going back to the other cage. It's a colony of China uh, from a colony of the UK. But cartoon has always been a very powerful weapon. Even the Chinese government knows that. Uh, to some extent, they're quite afraid of it. So it's quite a little bit of lucky for me. I'm currently working for Apple Daily and Mingpao Daily. I think this is the only two newspapers that can allow me to draw cartoon. But there are a lot of other young cartoonists who has lost their job and they were quite afraid of the new national security law. They don't want to draw the uh, national flags or the, the, the Hong Kong's flag and um, they won't play with the uh, national anthem. They used to make, make fun of Xi Jinping, so right, right now they are afraid to do it. I've drawn a cartoon. There are red lines everywhere and uh, we, we, we won't know where the red line will draw on what side and from what direction. And it is actually the case in right now in Hong Kong. So it's important for us to, to keep on drawing our cartoon and, and until one day they, they stop us. It would be naive to, to think that they, they're not going to, to do something on us. But to me as a cartoonist, of course, we have to use this opportunity to, to, to continue to express ourselves instead of laying down our pen and, and surrender. In 2020, June, I decided to leave Hong Kong. And I was definitely worried about my personal safety. I had um, been listed as one of the um, largest national enemy by the state media for a very long time. Just one year ago, I couldn't have imagined that I would be sitting here to do an interview in the UK, um, to be wanted under the national security law and to become an exile activist. 你提到的这个人是被香港警方通缉的犯罪，包庇违法犯罪分子，营方如公然为港独分子站台，为通缉犯提供所谓庇护，这是粗暴干涉香港司法，违背国际法和国际关系基本准则。
，也违背英方一向标榜的法治原则。In Hong Kong, you you just can't um talk genuinely about your thoughts towards the Beijing government towards the status of Hong Kong. There are lots of human rights activists, uh, not only themselves are being uh intimidated, uh, tortured, jailed. Their loved ones, um, including their wives, their children, are being intimidated, they are surveillanced, or even also jailed. So for me, I, when I realized that I would be leaving Hong Kong, I issued a public statement about severing my ties with my families. So I think I did a very difficult choice, but um, that choice was for the safety and well-being of my family. First of all, allow me to say that Mr. Nathan Lau in front of you is not a pro-democracy activist. He's a fugitive from the law of Hong Kong. The Beijing government has always been trying to smear me as a troublemaker or a fallen inciter or anything that uh, they could tarnish my reputation. Of course, they are targeting you individually, but they are also trying to discredit the whole movement. Even in London, I still, I'm still relatively cautious about my safety. Uh, we all understand how extensive China's reach could be. So I've been um, living a discreet life and trying to be protecting myself. But the future of Hong Kong, like the short-term future, is definitely grim. But in the long-term future, um, for me as an activist, I'm not entitled to lose hope. My duty is to empower people and to convince all of our fellows not to give up. After almost 25 years of chipping and then hacking away at Hong Kong's freedoms and autonomy, Beijing has left the hands-off approach behind. The pandemic proved a useful pretext to clear demonstrators from the streets. The new national security law has made it much harder for them to return. But the fight for Hong Kong is not over, as Lee Chok Yan from the June 4th Museum put it to the court before getting locked up, to live in the truth. That's the path of democracy I choose. You've been watching a special edition of our program on Hong Kong, how it's changed and where it's going. We'll see you next time here at The Listening